This podcast is Challenging Opinions and is presented by William Campbell. Thank you for downloading the Challenging Opinions podcast for April 6th, 2020. Is he a libertarian? Is he an anarchist? Is he happy with the system of government we have? Or is it possible that he's all of these? Let's talk to someone with a unique but entertaining political outlook. Challenging Opinions is the podcast where ideas are tested. Whether you are left or right, conservative or progressive, devout or skeptic, what matters is the strength of your argument, not the strength of your voice. Coming up in a few minutes, there are some libertarians who say, well, the tax collector said that I didn't pay my taxes and the cop who comes to seize my property is initiating that force. Therefore, I have the right to shoot him. Absolutely. I agree with that 100%. The cop is the one who initiates force there. He's guilty of uh, kidnapping you if he arrests you. That's coming up shortly. But first, I want to thank all of my donors on Patreon. I really appreciate everyone who contributes. If you don't know, Patreon is a system that allows people to donate a buck or two per podcast or per month, and that helps me to devote more time to research and to finding interesting guests. If you think that you could do the same as them, there's details on the website and at the end of the show. You might not have heard of Benford's Law. It's not so much a law, it's really just an observation that when you get a large enough set of natural numbers, let's say a list of all of the countries in the world by population, in sets of numbers like that, the first digit is one much more often than you would expect. And where the numbers don't begin with one, the next most likely starting digit is two, and it goes on down like that, the least likely starting digit is nine. So if you look at the list of countries by population, there's China and India in the one point something billion range. And there's loads. There's Russia, Mexico, Japan, Philippines, Bangladesh, and Egypt in the 100 and something million range. But there's only four countries in the 200 and something million range, one in the 300 and something million, that's the United States, and that's it. Go lower down the scale, and at every order of magnitude, countries whose population figure starts with a one are far more common. Countries whose population figure starts with a 9 are much rarer. There are mathematical reasons why this is the case, but they don't matter to the point that I'm making. Benford's Law is just one of a series of mathematical tools often used by people like forensic accountants who are trying to examine sets of figures to determine if they're true or not because it's surprisingly difficult for people to fake a set of naturally occurring numbers. This is something to bear in mind when looking at the figures from countries around the world regarding the coronavirus outbreak, particularly because there could be a lot of people in the chain between figures being collected and published who are motivated to push them up or down. A lot of people have commented on this, particularly observing the huge variation of death rates around the world. Some badly hit countries like Italy, Spain and the UK have high fatality rates at or above 10%, while other countries are down at 1 or 2%. The standard explanation of this is that it's all down to the testing. 
The logic goes like this. In some countries, we're missing a lot of infections from the figures, but not deaths. If someone dies, that gets noticed. I'm not so sure. For a start, we know that in the UK, the government was only reporting deaths that actually happened in hospital up to recently. People who died before they got to hospital were not counted, and also left out were people who were discharged to die at home. Also, The Economist magazine has compared death rates in badly hit areas of Spain and Italy to show how many people died in normal times. In the past weeks, the total death rates have rocketed, but only a fraction of that is accounted for by the announced deaths from the COVID-19 virus. As well as the normally expected deaths, there are the COVID deaths, and on top of that, there are thousands more unexpected deaths. That could be partly legitimate. Remember that the healthcare systems are overwhelmed. Right now is not a good time to have a heart attack or get in a car wreck. So it's probably not so astonishing that people with totally unrelated medical emergencies would have a higher death rate when hospitals are clogged and doctors are working flat out in a massive emergency. But the jump in the death rates in some places is so gigantic that it's difficult to believe that this explanation holds. These unexplained deaths that are not reported as COVID deaths are in some cases two or three times more than the COVID-19 deaths. It's very hard to escape the conclusion that in these countries with already very high reported death rates, the true death rates could be in fact even higher. Other concerning countries include Russia, Russia is far along in the process. It reported its first infection the day after Italy did, but as of this podcast, it has only reported about 5% of the number of cases as Italy and about 3% of the number of deaths. Putin has declared a national holiday. That's a creative way of doing a lockdown. So everyone in Russia is on a national holiday since March 28th and that's due to last until April 30th. That's fine for government employees and employees of big firms who get paid to stay at home, but for the self-employed and the informal economy, which accounts for most Russian employment, if they don't work, they don't get paid, and that's not an option in such a poor country as Russia. From personal contacts, I know that there is no real lockdown in operation, and in January, Moscow health officials reported a huge surge in what they called pneumonia, before changing their minds and saying that that hadn't happened at all. Here's another one. Indonesia, population 264 million, is reporting a tiny but steady rate of COVID infections and deaths. It's a poor country that has little capacity to either conduct tests or cope with a major epidemic. But Reuters are reporting that in Jakarta, the capital, the number of funerals in March was at least 40% above normal rates. But let's look at China. We all know the disaster started in Hubei province, but it's all under control now, right? Maybe. But there have been reports of 21 million cell phone contracts being deactivated in February and March. 
That's worrying because Chinese people are basically required by law to have a cell phone contract and can only cancel it when they die. It contains their government ID and this controls access to healthcare, education and so on. There was some comment that these missing phone contracts might indicate a huge untold death toll, but it's not clear what portion of that 21 million were the compulsory cell phones or were secondary phones that were held by, say, migrant workers who got a second contract to avoid roaming charges while they worked outside their home network. They might have cancelled those contracts when they lost their jobs and went home because of the crisis. But we don't know. What we do know is the official figures from Hunan province. Hunan borders on Hubei, where everything started. Hunan province has a population of 67 million. They're reporting thousands of cases, of which four people died. Four. Compare that to Iceland. They're reporting 1,500 cases and also exactly four deaths. But here's the thing. Iceland has a population of about a third of a million people. And it's far away, it's in the North Atlantic, on the other side of the world from China. And Iceland is reporting infection and death figures that are 200 or 300 times higher. Get that, a Chinese province, right next door to the epicentre of the outbreak, but it's reporting an infection rate 300 times lower than an isolated rock thousands of miles away. I think that guy Benford, he should be applying his law and having a close look at a lot of the figures that we're hearing from around the world. Do you agree? Do you disagree? If you want your point of view heard, email podcast at challengingopinions.com and say what you think. On the line, I have Bill St. Clair. Bill is a blogger, a programmer, and a libertarian. Bill, for people who don't know or have been living under a rock, what is a libertarian, or what sort of libertarian are you or were you? Oh, well, people who aren't aren't living under a rock probably think they know what a libertarian is, but most of them don't know what I think a libertarian is. And I go by L. Neil Smith's definition, Mm -hmm. which is, The libertarian believes that no one, under any circumstances, has the right to initiate force, nor to advocate or delegate the initiation of force. And people who who believe and act in Congress with that are libertarians, and people who don't are not, no matter whether they say they are or not. It's called non-aggression, the non-aggression principle. The non-aggression principle. I have some sympathy with that, but sometimes I think it kind of breaks down and I think it might be a good idea, but it seems impractical. And I notice that you have as the fav icon, and if anybody doesn't know what the fav icon, that's the little icon, the little picture that appears in your tab beside the name of a website and yours on your website bill is a circle a and this is i think an anarchist symbol that somebody like the dead kennedys might have been spray painting on walls in in dark alleys or even bright streets 20 years ago are you coming from an anarchist background or is there any difference Uh, between libertarianism and anarchism it, it is an anarchist symbol and i call myself nowadays an anarchist but uh there are a bunch of different branches of anarchism as well. Mm-hmm. Um, the the left anarchists who are um, 
want to have communes and such, largely think that the right anarchists, otherwise known as anarcho-capitalists, mm -hmm. aren't true anarchists, and uh, a little bit of vice versa. The the right anarchists tend to be a lot more open-minded about, you know, anything's cool as long as all all parties involved uh, are are there uh, of their own free will. Well, Jello Biafra is in the Green Party these days, but just specifically, because I want to get onto a bigger topic, but just specifically on libertarianism, how do you answer the criticism that it's not practical to defend an individual's rights from a very highly distributed infringement. So say, for example, you live in a city and a million people put coal on their fire and that is killing you because the smoke from a million smoky coal fires is causing pollution that is doing you damage. Can you sue them all individually or how, how would your view of the world cope with that? Um, well, the theory is that private property will solve it. And the problem is that there are commons and people pollute the commons. Mm -hmm. um, Such as and if you're, going to if you're going to have commons, you, you have to have some way of controlling the commons. And the only real way of controlling anything is for somebody to own it. Mm -hmm. um, the only way that I can see. And so I, I'm a libertarian and an anarchist, but the anarcho-capitalist means I believe in property. Mm -hmm. Um now, of so, course, so answer, answer my question directly then. Uh, the air is a commons. How, who would own that? I, I have no idea what you do about that problem. Okay, um, that's a very honest and, thing to say. Uh, the, the, the other interesting thing about, about the anarchist philosophy is everybody says, well, what's your system? How are you going to deal with this? And I say, I don't have a system. Mm -hmm. The whole idea of anarchy is that systems don't work. And systems are always gamed by somebody and make to make them worse than not being there. Um, and so you have to deal with every individual thing in an individual way. And the, the normal way put forward is insu uh, insurance companies. Mm -hmm. And uh, if, if you tend to uh, initiate force against people, no one will insure you. And then you will be fair game. Okay, okay. Well, one thing that you said when we were discussing doing this interview was that you've come to a realization, almost had a revelation recently. And tell me what that is. Well, it was a couple of mornings ago. I mean, I, I've gone through uh, libertarian pol politics where you're voting for libertarians into anarcho-capitalism where you're realizing that the system is totally broken and voting can't possibly fix anything. And if it could, they'd make it illegal mm -hmm. um, into, OK, well, let's make an anarchist society. How do we do this? A violent revolution won't work because uh, that uh, usually violent revolutions make things worse than they were. Whoever picks up the pieces tends to be uh, the baddest fellow on the planet rather than, uh, you know, mm -hmm. I we like to complain about our government in the U.S., but it's actually pretty good. Um, we have a lot of freedoms, and we they they take a lot of our money away, and it would be lovely to have that because they don't spend it very efficiently. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, so, but but so I sort of and the other problem with an anarchist society is that they have the public schools, which are brainwashing everyone into believing they're necessary and that they're proper. Um, and we also have the problem of welfare. Uh, the guy that robs Peter to pay Paul can usually depend on the support of Paul. And you're not going to get Paul to vote to try to get rid of the guy who's robbing Peter because then he won't be giving Paul any money anymore. Um, 
So, uh, uh, mm-hmm. but my rev- so so I sort of ha- had dropped to the point where well, we really can't get there from here. I'm going to have to just live my life and have a good time, and uh, um, and I won't be able to change the world. Um, and you know, I'm 64 years old. I don't have that much longer on the planet to change the world anyway. And I have a lot of things I love doing. And so I've mostly switched to just doing what I love. But the revelation the other day was, you know, we are really already living in the anarchist world that I want. And the only problem with it is that there are these large warlords called governments mm-hmm. uh, that have a huge amount of power. Mm-hmm. And so the only way we can go there is we have to get people to stop uh, honoring their <coughs> to stop honoring um, their authority. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is actually an idea that comes from Larkin Rose, a book called um, "The Most Dangerous Superstition," and he considers the belief in the validity of imposed authority to be the most dangerous superstition on the planet. And that, and the whole the whole part of my realization was. Uh, and there's something I've read everywhere, but it was basically a phase change going from I've read this and I, I believe it's right to um, I know this is right. This is how the world is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so how the world is, is it's anarchist. We have free will. We can do anything we want and we have to suffer the consequences of doing anything we want. If somebody doesn't like it, they're going to stop us. Mm-hmm. If somebody really doesn't like it, they're going to shoot us. Um and they might do this through the agency of a policeman or they might do this, by, and especially in America, by themselves. Mm-hmm. So all that's left to do is uh, convince people that this imposed authority has no proper um, validity. This is also Lysander Spooner's ideas in the Constitution of No Authority. That this constitution was written and a bunch of people voted for it, but I never voted for it. Nobody even asked me to vote for it, yet they assume they can impose the things that it says on me. I'm going to stop you there. I'm going to stop you there. And you say, and first of all, from a philosophical point of view, I think that you've got a really strong point there. I really uh, uh, am strongly in sympathy with you. However, however, in a practical way, I think that the authority of government comes from its effectiveness. And we've talked on this podcast a little while ago about a guy called Hans Rosling. He wrote a book about how things are getting better, and particularly in the 20th century, particularly in the last, say, 50 years, how there's been an enormous improvement in a whole range of very, very basic metrics. So, for example, the vast majority of children in the world, most of whom are in what we would call the third world, are getting educated, are getting vaccinated, are getting basic health care, are getting access to electricity. Most people in the world, even in countries that we see as really poorly off, are much better off than people were in the United States a hundred years ago. And that's down essentially to the authority of governments and the rule of law, isn't it? Well, I will agree with with the facts that you've stated. The world has gotten better. Mm -hmm. Uh, Whether governments are responsible for it, I don't know. Can I suggest an experiment? Go to Somalia, which is pretty much the only ungoverned space in the world. It doesn't have any 
thing approaching ah, yes, a, 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 a formal the old Somalia canard. Um, well, well, if you don't, and if you don't, if you don't want to talk about Somalia, you can talk about uh, Libya, where an admittedly terrible, terrible government of uh, Muammar Gaddafi collapsed and has left essentially an ungoverned space or a space that's not governed by anything other than real gangs. In other words, people with uh, machine guns bolted onto the back of uh, pickup trucks. And life there has gone from being not great, but relatively okay, to being absolutely catastrophic, hasn't it? Um, I will agree it's catastrophic. I don't know what the cause of that was. I don't know that the cause of there's, things there's getting a, better there's in an other interesting, countries. There's, there's an interesting parallel. Uh, well, yeah, there's definitely uh, – these things happened at the same time. Yes. Uh, but you still – that does not imply any causality at all. That implies you should look for causality and expect that maybe there's causality, but you still have to prove causality. Well, there's um, a very, very I, strong correlation between yes, the, the government put, ceasing to exist well, and well, people, people places, living definitely. by a murder rate that's off the scale and a, a collapse in the economy and a collapse in the rule of law. Right. And in those, I, I agree with you. There's a huge causality, but it's the same thing with climate change. The mm -hmm. climate is getting warmer and there's more CO2 in the air. There's definitely a... a a, a, a uh, some some they're happening at the same time. There's a correlation. Yes, uh, but I have seen no proof yet that there's any causality. Ah, uh, hang on, uh, hang, actually, on hang on, hang on. I, well, first of all, first of all, Bill, I'm not going to go into the climate change debate on this podcast because that's too big. Okay, but but if you're complaining that this is correlation, not causation, if I stick my hand in my, the fire and my hand starts burning, nobody really needs to prove the causality there. I'm pretty happy oh, no. that the correlation yeah. proves it. Well, well, you you're pretty happy that. That, that experiment has been repeated so many times that you can call it causality. Yes. Um, Which is essentially, we have 197 or whatever countries in the world, the two spaces that are essentially ungoverned are a catastrophe. The well, one well, no, that no, no, became no. ungoverned, so you, you, the, one, the, the one Libya that became ungoverned in the past uh, decade or so, before being ungoverned, was a relatively okay place to live. Not great, by the way, but vastly better than it is now. Those are true, aren't they? Okay, wait a minute. There's one important thing you said. Mm -hmm. You said the two countries that lost their governments uh, went hugely worse. Uh, I yes. will agree. Uh, um, but um, that was as if another country, that implies that if another country lost its government, it would also be worse. That does not the A does not prove B in that case. Those two however, particular however, places, if, if two guys stick works. their hands in the fire and get their hand burnt, I, I'm going to be fairly sure that I'm not going to be the third guy to stick my hand in the fire. Well, if you're going to call that a fire, I I do not. I think it's all about the particular culture in the particular place. Mm -hmm. And let me state a generality here. Um, I'm a mathematician, mm -hmm. so I understand how logic works. Um, I also understand how uncertainty works. In human human systems, uh, the the uncertainty principle states that um, in any system that's sufficiently complicated, there are true theorems that are not provable. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, it also is associated with the uncertainty principle in physics, which says you can know the speed of an object 
or its uh, position, but you can't know both at the same time to any more than a particular uh, uh, relationship. Mm-hmm. So if you know the speed perfectly, you will not know the position perfectly and vice versa. Yep. Uh, and the, the general thing there is measuring something changes it. Um, and so if you're measuring some large thing like a planet by uh, shining a, a light on it, you, you're obviously not changing it very much. And the amount you're changing it is so small that you can expect that what you're measuring is actually the planet and not your measurement process. Mm-hmm. Uh, the problem with human systems is that, the, and this is also all related to the speed of information travel in the medium. If there's a fast speed of information travel, uncertainty is small. If there's a, a slow speed of information travel, uncertainty becomes much larger. Mm-hmm. Uh, the speed of information travel in human systems is very slow. Uncertainty dominates almost every experiment. It's very difficult to do any experiment and expect that you're measuring anything but your experiment and what you expect to come out of it. Sure, and not sure, what sure. Actually pause, pause, pause with that, Bill. And I, I agree with that. And I understand what you're saying there. But pause on that idea for a moment. Because when I look around through across history and across geography, I can see that people who live in most of the world, but particularly the Western world today, have it so much better than almost all of human history. And we have it so much better than the places that don't have stable democratic governments. I wouldn't be willing to gamble with the welfare of a billion people by saying, hey, let's destroy society and see what springs up instead. Because well, okay, I'm not that, that's, that the... seems to me that seems to me like a Paul Pot type proposition. Well, well, that's it. I, I'm I'm a libertarian. I cannot initiate force, so I have no way to impose that idea on anybody. I can just say, I think this would be a good idea. Please think about it. Let's see how we can, if we can make it work. That's as far as I can go. Mm-hmm. I can't point a gun at somebody and say, you will follow my rule because then I'm not a libertarian anymore. And I'm now the bad, the bad actor. Mm-hmm. Whoever starts the fight is the, is wrong. Always. There, there are some, but there are some libertarians who say, well, actually, uh, the cop who comes to my house because the tax collector said that I didn't pay my taxes and the cop who comes to seize my property is starting initiating that force. Therefore, I have the right to shoot him. Absolutely. I agree with that 100%. The cop is the one who initiates force there. He's guilty of uh, kidnapping you if he arrests you for something that wasn't actually a crime when you did it. An actual crime has a victim and it has intent to, to, to harm. You have to actually harm a human victim and you have to have meant to harm that human victim. Otherwise, it's not a crime. That means vice is completely out uh, speed limits are completely out. Uh, any prior restraint is completely out. Um, oh, but hold, and, on, uh, hold on for a second. Hold on for a second. It, you're saying that if I have half a bottle of whiskey and I get behind the wheel of a high-powered heavy vehicle and drive it at 130 miles an hour uh, through a highly densely populated area, that the residents of that area are not entitled to object and to take whatever steps are necessary to prevent me from doing that? Um, well, no crime has been committed yet. No one's been hurt. As soon as someone is hurt, they can string you up uh, for, for murder, for being, uh, you know, just totally out, out, 
out of out of factor. Now, there you do approach a place where you do have uh, something you can do when you're actually driving the car dangerously. You know, when you're swerving all over and running into people. Uh, but as soon as you run into somebody, you've damaged their property and you've committed a crime. Um, but surely experience, Bill, tells us that it is much better and the cost to society is far lower if you restrain that very dangerous behavior before it causes a negative effect. Well, uh, I disagree with that. I think that the the unintended consequences of prior restraint are always worse than the, the problem that would happen if you didn't have the prior restraint. What, what, what are the unintended consequences, the worse well, unintended consequences? Bill, 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 hold on. What are the worse unintended consequences of prohibiting drunk driving? Uh, you're stopping people for no reason and measuring something in their blood when it may not be affecting their driving. The only thing you have any um, actionable uh, reason to stop people for is if you notice that they're swerving around on the road and likely to run into somebody. Then it doesn't matter why. All that matters is that they're doing that and they're not driving safely. Mm -hmm. And, of course, the proper way to control that is for the road to be private and then the, the road owner can make any rules he wants and you have to agree to his contract. Uh, we have these sort of implicit contracts and driver's licenses that you agree to follow the rules of the road. Mm -hmm. But our governments are also allowed to change the rules of the road whenever they feel like it by passing some new law that makes some new thing not legal anymore. And yesterday you could do that fine. And today they'll arrest you and throw you in jail for five years if you do that. Go back then to your revelation. And I think it was very interesting what you said, that governments are essentially just an, another gang in an anarchistic uh, system. But the difference is that in much of the world, we can vote governments in and out. Well, that's the thing. Um, uh, it was one of the Russian uh, oligarchs, uh, Lenin, or who's the other Russian? I, I think it was Stalin, and I can guess the quote that you're going to come up with, that yeah. uh, it doesn't matter who votes, it matters who counts. That's right. And that happens in the US as well. Sure. And there are flaws in democracy and there are flaws in everything. But you wouldn't throw it out just because there is a flaw in it. And Well, the, you, try the, to, you try to fix the flaws. I mean, that's the Declaration of Independence. The mm -hmm. People will put up with an awful lot of flaws before they finally get pushed over the edge and are going to throw off uh, the, the burden. Um, and I've just realized that I mean, my... my earlier realization long ago is that governments always get corrupt. It's the nature of government. The the, the worst liars rise to the no, top. No, I think you're totally wrong. I think you're totally wrong, Bill. I think that if you look over the past century, democracy, the quality of democracy around the world has been steadily increasing. There have been backward steps, but over the last, let's say, century, the quality of democracy has been steadily increasing all over the world. It's interesting that you say that, and the tax rate keeps going up. To me, the only thing I see the government doing is there are roads I can drive on, mm -hmm. there's water that comes out of my tap, um, uh, there's electricity that comes out of the walls, but the government doesn't really do much about that. Those are run by private companies. Mm -hmm. um, and they take a lot of my money away. Um, nothing else they do matters to me at all. I hold don't on, want hold on for a second. Hold on for a second, Bill. Uh -huh. The whole world 
including most of what we would regard as the third world, is immeasurably richer than it was a 100 years ago. So wealth seems to be strongly correlated with that increase in democracy. Oh, okay. Well, wait a minute. There have been other things that have happened besides government changing. That's uh, true. We're, we're, we're freer, and we've learned that capitalism works. Even the Chinese know that capitalism works. You let people own the means of production, and you let them own their profit that they make, and they're much more motivated to actually... No, you're, you're, dodging, you're dodging my argument, Bill. I, I'm not arguing you... On I'm the, not. On the, I'm, I'm, I'm not arguing with you on the, on the financial point. I'm saying on the, democ on the democratic point, you said that governments tend over time to, be to become more democratic. That's the exact opposite of the experience no, said, of the last hundred more, years. More, I said more corrupt. E e then let's say yeah. more corrupt. But that's the exact opposite of the experience across the world over the last century. Well, there I have disagree. Been I've, been, I've been watching government in the US and, and they get, they're corrupt everywhere and they seem to get worse all the time. That's what I see. That's, oh, that's one part of the world over one part of that century. But if you look around the world, there are far more democracies now than there were 50 years ago. And of those democracies, most of them are a better quality democracy. I would not particularly say that of the United States, but in general, it's true. All right. Well, I don't live in any of those. I have no experience of any of those. All I have to see of any of those is a story that somebody wrote. I don't believe any stories that people write anymore. None of them. Does, if I didn't mean, see it myself, mean, if I didn't prove it myself, it's not real. But Bill, Bill, doesn't that mean that the information on which you can base your judgment is far narrower than it might otherwise be? Well, it's not that I don't read those things. It's just that I consider them to be stories that are yet to be proven to be true. Bill St. Clair, blogger, programmer and libertarian. Thank you very much for talking to me. All right. Well, thank you for talking with me. Have you read a blog post or an opinion piece that you think is really right or really wrong? Tell us why. Email podcast at challengingopinions.com and let's discuss it on the next show. Go to the website for sources and links to what we were talking about. And while you're there, please like the show on Facebook, follow at ChallengingO on Twitter, and follow Bill St. Clair at Bill S-T-C-L-A-I-R. And get in touch with me if you can suggest a guest or a topic for a future show. Thanks also to everyone who's signed up as a patron on Patreon. I appreciate them all. They help me to devote more time to researching topics and guests. And if you could do the same as them and donate a buck or two per podcast or per month, go to patreon.com slash challenging opinions, or you'll find the link on the website. Also, you can find out how to subscribe to the podcast for free on your computer, on your phone, or by email. It's all at www.challengingopinions.com. The Challenging Opinions podcast is produced and presented by me, William Campbell. Thank you for listening.